So congratulations. You have completed the first full day of the retreat. And you've come here in the midst of a world that is in particular uh, suffering at the moment. There are two wars in the Middle East. There are tribal wars, there are civil wars all over the world. There's mass starvation in, in Niger. And in the suffering is not just all over the world, but is right in our backyards. I work in a prison, uh, which is 10 minutes away from where I live. And I know it's not unlike many prisons all over our country, because we have, I think it's now over 2 million people incarcerated in America alone. So in the midst of the suffering, we come here to see if perhaps there is another way that we as human beings can live. So each of us comes here perhaps with some suffering, and probably it's not perhaps we all come with some suffering because that is the human condition. But we come in the midst of the struggle for dignity and freedom. So we all come here to hear the teachings of the Buddha, wise, true, beautiful guidance on this path of suffering that we're given by life and by our collective world and personal histories. To see if there's a way from out of the suffering of racism, wars, hunger, greed, and conflict. 2,500 years ago, the Buddha on his deathbed laid down a challenge for each of us, not to be so much a believer of his teachings, but to investigate them and to see for ourselves whether they work for us. And if they do, to embody them. He said, be a lamp unto yourself. And he left behind teachings that are now in many volumes and that have spawned thousands and thousands and thousands of pages, millions perhaps, of commentary. And in those pages and those commentaries are contained everything the Buddha knew about bondage, suffering, and liberation. And having left those teachings behind, he said, now our enlightenment is up to us. Our way out of suffering is up to each of us individually. So he left a legacy that each of us has responsibility for or our own choices, for our own behavior and our own lives. And so there's a bottom line here that we can learn the deepest value of sitting quietly, 
breathing each breath effortlessly and consciously while non-doing. And in that non-doing, to see the truth of things as they are and the relationship and the dance that we're all in together. When we were children, we had the ability to do that. We had long stretches of time when we were aware of being not separate from the universe and from humanity. When we could do nothing quite happily without any kind of stressing over it or without thinking. And we could see that path to happiness and peace and freedom of the heart because it was right there, as the Tibetan teachers say, in the palm of our hand, in our basic nature. We knew as children that we were already free. We knew our true, our true identity and that we could be happy for no particular reason. As a matter of fact, it was the recollection of such a moment of, hap- of pure happiness in his childhood that reminded the Buddha to turn back to the practice of mindfulness. So as we do this practice of mindfulness, perhaps we don't know it uh, specifically, but I think we can actually feel the love of the Buddha reaching through the millennia, wanting us to see and understand how much suffering we unnecessarily endure and the ways in which that suffering can end. He, he encourages us to try a remedy that he found for himself and to see for ourselves whether it works. So I'd like to give you a little bit of my own background and how a little bit about how the Dharma has worked in my own life. I came to America as an 11-year-old from Jamaica, and I was thrust straight into high school with um, kids who were three and four years older than I was, and it was a huge adjustment anyway, being an immigrant, but also being with kids who were so much older than I am. And because of the way I looked, I looked different from most people that were there. There was the question, what are you? And not understanding that question truly, because I was from a culture that was of mixed ancestry and basically of a single cultural identity. So there in Jamaica, this question was never really asked. We were all Jamaicans, and it was understood that our history meant that most of us were descended not only from slaves brought, um, brought there in deep suffering, but also from the very people who brought them there. 
with other immigrants who came to Jamaica under uh, various different ways of economic and political suffering, Chinese and Middle Easterners and the conquering English themselves. So I lived with some unease when I first came here to this country uh, with how to answer this question, what are you? For a very long time, uh, trying to find a, a short and pithy answer that wasn't a long, drawn-out explanation of all of the bloodlines running through my veins. Which nationality should I choose today? With which ancestor should I most uh, identify? And what makes me, me? Where is my entry point and my connection to humanity? And there, in all of those questions, a mass of uh, confusion and suffering was born. So to come face to face uh, with the core issue of race in this culture, and no wisdom or historical strength on which I could rely and no center to return to, was great suffering. I found these teachings when I was uh, 22 years old. And they were a very, very great gift. They enabled me to make the journey to come to some measure of peace and connectedness in this very body and mind without having to make things. And uh, most importantly, to make my own experience other than they are. They taught me how to turn toward, not away from the suffering of wanting to be other than I am, and to turn towards the feeling of insecurity and vulnerability in my own skin. There's the story uh, that after the Buddha's enlightenment, Mara, the king of delusion, asked the Buddha what he thought gave him the right to think he could direct humankind away from the suffering it had always endured. And in response, the Buddha, as in the uh, statue you see behind me, the Buddha touched the earth to witness his right to be here. He acknowledged where he came from, recognized his true heritage and his true lineage that of the earth. So similarly, we all come together to acknowledge our own heritage, our true lineage, because we belong to the lineage of the earth as well as all those beings who in these last 2,500 years have endeavored to sit with dignity, to touch the earth, and to face everything that is within. Our own greed, hatred, anger, covetousness, and delusion, all of which underlie the suffering that we endure. But the good news is that these are all states that all human beings have in common and that can be worked with and transformed.
the teachings that we endeavor to practice here show us a way in which we can work with all the forces in the mind, whatever they are, and in that sincere and careful work, we can free ourselves from suffering. And that freedom that comes through this practice includes not having to place blame on any other person or thing, including the culture or the circumstances of our birth. And it also includes facing the reality of the pain and grief of oppression and alienation and the pain of our human history. This path can teach us through meditation, study, and practice a way to free ourselves from the pain of all the years of confusion and suffering. One of the deep insights that comes from the practice is that everything is impermanent. Everything changes. Hallelujah. And in the midst of this world of change, we are appointed to a place of serenity that is available to each one of us, no matter what our history. And in that turning from that history, we, in, in that turning, we don't turn away from that history, but we incorporate it into that place of serenity. And the practice that we do, that is the practice of mindfulness, is the path to that place of serenity. It asks us to include everything, the pain, the grief, the sorrow. But the kind of acceptance that serenity or a sense of being settled requires is a cultivation. We are, we're so programmed to not settle and to not receive things as they are and to rush and to speed and to grasp at what we find pleasant and to be aversive and uh, hateful towards that which we find unpleasant. That when we're asked to turn towards rather than away from, it takes work, it takes a practice. So in this practice of mindfulness, we begin to, um, to settle or open into a place where we can receive whatever impressions arise. We're beckoned to come to this present moment and then we establish ourselves there and allow ourselves to be touched by whatever is occurring, whether it's pleasant or painful or whatever it brings up. And we are asked to look at it, to see it, to be with it, to experience it with acceptance and with interest. 
Someone asked today in one of the interviews whether or not this acceptance leads to mediocrity. And I thought it was an an excellent question because it's a question that I think comes immediately to our minds being conditioned in the culture that we, we are. That if we accept things as they are, then there's danger of accepting injustice and racism and uh, ignorance and, uh, and not being creative, not, have, not uh, wanting things to be different, not going out to make things different where they ought to be different. This is not the kind of acceptance of which um, mindfulness speaks the kind of acceptance that um, is requ- re- I'm sorry, required of us is an acceptance of things exactly as they are so that in order to accept things exactly as they are, we need to understand them first as they are. And if we understand where things are, then it's not that we resign ourselves, but in the understa- from the understanding comes wisdom. And from wisdom, whatever actions come will be appropriate and will be responsive rather than reactive. So we need not worry when we're asked to meet our experience with acceptance, that somehow that's a dumbing down or a dulling of our instinct to make a better world or to contribute to the world loving kindness and compassion and wisdom. So mindfulness is there to give us the strengths and the skills to stabilize and guide ourselves through the phenomena that are arising in our experience. And as we practice, then we see that it it becomes important to be aware of the choices that we make over what we contact. And that's the place where uh, wisdom is born. Naturally, there is attachment to pleasant contact or contact with things that we understand and feel familiar with. And you may have noticed now, after a day of practice, that there's a powerful inclination to just contact that which is pleasant and stable and secure. But when we really look, we see that everything is changing. And it's only when we realize that the notion of security is really taking away our freedom and our purity of presence, then we can let go into the present moment. Really look to see how much of your effort is spent over these days trying to establish permanence in an impermanent world. And how much of your disappointment when it arises 
comes because you thought you had something solid and then it changed, whether it was um, a good meditation experience. You know, we have a what we call a, quote, good sitting because there's relatively little pain and perhaps, you know, instead of just being able to notice one breath at a time, maybe we notice two or three before the mind goes off and we think, ah, the next sitting will be exactly the same way. And then, poof, what happens? It changes. This poem is called Soon by Phyllis Levin. She says, something is always arriving or fading, drifting down a stream or falling from branches into pool or shade. A cluster of hazelnuts lying in the grass of a summer garden soon, very soon, graces a platter of olives and cheese and green figs ripening since noon. As we dine with the beautiful couple at our table, drinking to the light between them, a year before they part, confused and sad and sure, very sure, they cannot live together anymore. So mindfulness is the path to the place where we can accept whatever is arising with peaceful attention. The wisdom that knows we can never be protected from change, from insecurity, or from uncertainty. The often repeated injunction of the Buddha is not to believe what he taught, but to actually, um, it's translated as come and see for ourselves, ehipasiko. So I'd like to look for a few moments directly at the actual practice of mindfulness. The Buddha, in the sutta in which he set out the practice, set of mindfulness. Friends, this is the direct path for the purification of beings, for the surmounting of sorrow and lamentation, for the disappearance of dukkha and discontent or pain and grief, for acquiring the true method or way, and for the realization of Nibbana, namely, the establishment of mindfulness. So the Buddha basically wasn't shy about saying what this practice would bring if we enter into it. He said, this is it. This is the way. And I don't know about you, but this grabs my attention. And yet, no matter how much we want the fruit of the practice, Have you noticed in your practice today how the mind actually resists doing it? Especially as we're making the transition into stillness from the busyness of our lives. You've probably spent a lot of energy preparing yourself to come to this retreat, even if it's only for um, five days, it's a relatively short retreat, but yet It takes a lot to get here. Somebody has to take care of the cat and the dog, and we have to make sure that our responsibilities are taken care of and our jobs are um, fulfilled. 
So we come and perhaps the first day is a little difficult, you know, we find as soon as we sit down and um, turn to our breaths, the mind and the body all want to go to sleep because we're tired. Or there is so much on our minds and maybe things that we forgot to do that the mind slips off and it wants to go back to where we came from. This is from John Donne. I throw myself down in my chamber and invite God and his angels hither. And when they are there, I neglect God and his angels for the noise of a fly, for the rattling of a coach, and for the whining of a door. How many thousands of times do we do this? We live in the midst of incredible beauty and wonder And somehow, we're more entranced and caught by distractions, and often, strangely enough, even unpleasant ones. We would rather be caught by an unpleasant memory or a fear of the future than to actually be with whatever is arising in this moment. And so that is why it's important to be present, to be awake and aware of what is truly here. We lose the strength of our uh, natural mind to the distractions to which we give attention. All the various thoughts and emotional reactions that we grasp at and that we run after and get caught by. In letting go, which is the heart of mindfulness practice, and coming back to what is here and now, again and again and again and again and again and again and again, the mind starts to collect itself. And this is called samadhi, the mind that is unified. Coming together of the heart and mind. And when the mind is unified, it is strong. So the Buddha gave instructions as to how to practice. He said, and how, friends, does a meditator abide contemplating? He goes to the forest, he or she goes to the forest, or to the root of a tree, or to an empty hut, sits down, having folded his or her legs crosswise, set the body erect, and established mindfulness in front, ever mindful, he or she breathes in, mindful, she breathes out, breathing in long, she understands I breathe in long, breathing out long, she understands I breathe out long, etc., So we begin the instructions with attention to the breath to bring the mind to this unified state of samadhi and eventually some degree of quiet and calm may come. Over the next days of the retreat, the instructions will unfold to cover all of our experience as the Buddha instructed to look at 
not only the breath and the body, but the body and the body, feelings and feelings, the mind and the mind, and what he called all dharmas, all the natural laws of the world and all phenomena that are arising, and to see their nature. And so we practice um, what we call vipassana, or insight meditation, with the changing objects that are arising and passing away moment by moment. We shift our focus from the breath to sound, body sensations, feelings, and mental states as they arise. And we develop the quality of one-pointedness, either by focusing just on the breath or on the changing, presently arising objects. And there will eventually come some measure of stillness and clear focus in some of our moments. And in a quiet and still mind, which we, will, which we are developing, there is space for wisdom. In mindfulness, there is a quality of bare attention. And this quality that we bring to the practice senses our experience directly and pre-verbally without the overlay of concepts or evaluation or comparison or judgment or choosing or projection or interference or manipulation or reflection. And essentially, if you are able to meet your experience uh, or receive it in that bare way with interest and with just a deep recognition of what is here and acceptance of it without the unnecessary uh, identification that this is mine or this is me and without the need to change it or make it some other way other than it is, you'll find that right in that moment, your relationship to that experience is a relationship of freedom, a release of the heart. And that includes all types of experience. You may have noticed that as you begin to um, sit now and get used to the cross-legged position, or even as if you're sitting in a chair or sitting on, on a bench, no matter what pos- posture you sit in, in our interviews today, at least 80% of you talked about um, body, body pain in my interviews. And that is uh, that happens in meditation First, because we're getting used to um, a posture that the body doesn't uh, normally hold for as long as you're asked to hold it. But also there's just pain that that comes up in meditation because there are so many um, pressures and difficulties and stresses that we've held in our bodies for so long. And when we stop, and start to look carefully and closely, the body 
says, ah, attention, you're giving me attention. Here, you need to look at this. So you're asked in the practice to not so much turn away from that kind of pain that may be arising. And I think someone here um, yesterday with Joseph asked about um, the sitting posture and when we can, uh, when we recommend that you change postures or when you should endure the pain. And what I recommend is that there's, it's always a dance and there's always some wisdom that's needed. The practice um, asks of you that whatever is arising is brought under the light of awareness. So if what is arising in this present moment is physical pain, that too is included in our mindfulness. So for instance, we're sitting and trying to follow the breath, and suddenly a pain in the knee arises. Our usual reaction or instinct is, it's unpleasant, I don't like it, I want it to go away, so I'll move. And certainly we can do that. Uh, if If we move right away mindlessly and without even turning to give a glancing a slight glance to what is happening, we learn absolutely nothing. And that moment is, um, doesn't contribute to our wisdom. However, if we're able, we can actually turn the attention to that experience because it is what's pulling the attention right then and there. It's what's happening in this moment. And so we turn our attention to it in a way that is gentle and caring and kind so that we look at that experience that is happening in the body. We may notice that there's a version there that we don't like, that it's an unpleasant experience. And so we can turn to that aversion, notice that. And then actually look at what's happening in the body, what we call pain in the mind is actually a concept. We don't actually feel pain. What we feel, if we turn our attention to it, is a pricking, stabbing, hardness, vibration, pulsation, um, warmth, heat, all sorts of uh, vibrations and and, uh, sensations moving around and um, working in that area that we call my knee. So we can actually turn our attention to it rather than just dismissing it in aversion and actually see what the nature of that unpleasant experience is. Now, what you may say is, well, you know, why should I do that when I can just get rid of this pain right away? Well, what you, what you quickly realize is that, um, first of all, that's an assumption, and we may move for that moment, but, the, but some other pain may arise. And secondly, that if many times when we simply uh, allow 
experience, even though it's unpleasant to be there in the present moment, when we allow it to be there in awareness and we notice that it changes and that it moves, it actually, it, there are three possibilities. It gets stronger, it stays the same, or it, or it, it leaves. And most of the time, um, it will end. And you can know that right now by thinking of whatever pains and aches arose today in your um, various periods of sitting, where are they now? What happened to them? And were you there? Were you actually there for their disappearance? Or did you miss it? And of course, um, we're not asking for stoicism or for martyrdom. So if the pain actually gets to a point where you feel as if you can't bear it, then the best way to work with it is to, um, if you decide to move, to see if you can actually move without um, losing your mindfulness so that you can actually notice your intention to move and notice what it takes to move so that you're not um, moving out of your mindfulness but actually including it all in your experience in the present moment. So in doing that, what we, what we come to know is that we actually have freedom in our experience, that our experiences, uh, whether they're experiences in the body or in the mind, are not actually pushing us around, but that we, we um, in practicing mindfulness, actually give ourselves a choice. We give ourselves a way of uh, responding to appropriately rather than reacting. And that dimension of freedom is already there in us, but we tend to overlay it with preferences, likes and dislikes, wants and not wants, hopes and fears. And in that way, we actually interfere with the freedom that is at the very root of our nature. So this um, injunction to relate in a receptive way to our, um, to our experience changes our relationship to life moment by moment. It may seem hardly worth a headline, um, Gina connected with a breath today or she actually heard a bare sound without identifying it as a car, or she connected deeply with the lifting and moving and placing of her foot. And that may, that may seem a little plain and a little ordinary or neutral, but don't underestimate its power over time, moment after moment after moment. The Buddha said, don't disregard the accumulation of wholesomeness saying this will come to nothing. 
With the gradual falling of raindrops, a jar is filled. No moment of mindfulness ever goes to waste. It's all filling up the jar. And over time, these accumulated moments of mindfulness have a liberating impact. So the practice requires that we drop our our habits of busyness and speed. And it's important that we really make a conscious effort to slow down. It's a great luxury that we're offered here. We have a culture that is increasingly addicted to speed and rushing, and we all know that. So when we slow down, we actually open fully to our experience without rushing through moment to moment to moment. So what I encourage you to do is as you go through the day, to really see if you can not fall forward to the, um, to the pot at the end of the rainbow, not fall forward to what your next um, activity is. So if you're sitting and the bell rings, to actually hear the bell, actually hear it from its beginning through its middle and its end. And once the bell has, the sound of the bell has disappeared, See if you can actually notice your intention to move. And when you've noticed the intention to move, then notice what it takes to actually arise from your seat. And then what it takes to stand. Joseph did a beautiful um, instruction this morning in actually showing us how to appreciate that moment just of standing there, this body standing in the in the midst of the air. And can you actually slow down so that you can appreciate just what it's like to stand on this earth and what it takes to move out of the hall? You know, I I notice people rushing to to walk and I can almost see the thought of, where am I going to walk? I'm going to, oh, that was a nice corner in the garden. I think I'll go there rather than actually appreciating that right in this moment it requires one step to get closer to that place in the garden. So there's a slight energy sometimes of leaning into the future, and even if it's the immediate future. So we can, can we appreciate the gift that we are now given to be supported in this moment fully awake and aware with nothing to do and nowhere to go? other than to know what is happening right now in this moment. So whether we're doing our yogi jobs, or we're going to the bathroom, or we're brushing our teeth, or combing our hair, or getting dressed, or sitting here, or walking, everything is equally important. Each moment has equal value. Each thought, each feeling, each morsel that we eat, everything has equal value. And everything is a valuable support in our awakening. No experience is any less or more than any other experience. So don't ignore 
anything. And in that way, your practice becomes really seamless. And you actually begin to see the truth of what is happening now. There are qualities that we develop in this practice of mindfulness. We can develop compassion for ourselves, patience, and perseverance. And as Sharon mentioned this afternoon, we can actually even use mindful uh, metta in our mindfulness practice to bring a quality of loving kindness to um, each moment of mindfulness so that we're not judging ourselves when, we, when the mind slips off, but we're actually coming to the practice with a, from a place of love and kindness and care and with a quality of patience and a quality of perseverance. We can exercise respect and gentleness and intimacy with our experience, one that we can't ordinarily do when we're busy doing um, our, when we're busy in our daily lives. So take this gift that you have, that you now have in the palm of your hand of support for being able to uh, cultivate all of these qualities. I'll close with um, an exchange of letters uh, between uh, Raina Maria Rilke and a poet named Kapas, which are um, contained in a book called Letters to a Young Poet, which uh, is quite famous. The poet Kapas asks Rilke, what is our greatest hope for the young people we teach? What is the most important task of all? And Rilke answered unequivocally, unequivocally, to take love seriously and to bear it, to bear and to learn it like a task. This is what young people need. For one human being to love another, that is perhaps the most difficult of all our tasks, the ultimate, the last test and proof, the work for which all other work is but a preparation. For this reason, young people who are beginners in everything cannot yet know love. They have to learn it. With their whole being, with all their forces, gathered close about their lonely, timid, upward-beating heart, they must learn to love. When we undertake the practice, we are always beginning again. And so in that sense, we are always beginners. And that is what we learn when we do this practice, when we come to it with that care and respect and with our willingness to be vulnerable, to be open, and to actually be beginners. We learn how to love again. As Sharon said this afternoon, the more we do this practice, the more we realize that we are not doing it for ourselves alone, 
but we do it for all of humanity. Because what we bring to this world, if we bring peace, then the world is that much more peaceful. So we learn through this practice to love again. Let's sit for a moment. Thank you. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.